0: Hello and welcome to you all. Thank you very much for joining this launch event of the European Expert Group on Orphan Drug Incentives, focusing today on how to address the unmet needs for rare disease patients in Europe by learning for the very first time the key proposals developed by the experts. My name is Sue Saville. I was the medical correspondent at Britain's ITV News, and I'm delighted to be guiding you through our discussions today. Now, just think about this. There are more than 6,000 different rare diseases affecting some 30 million people in Europe alone. That's about 6% of the population. And around 95% of rare diseases do not as yet have any effective therapies to treat them. Each individual case may be rare in its condition, but when you add them all together, the impact is huge. And that impact, of course, is personal, it's societal, it's financial for families, for patients, and of course, for healthcare systems. So what can be done? Well, this is very timely because the orphan medicinal products, OMP regulation and paediatric regulations are undergoing evaluation for review at the moment. So also we have the new pharmaceutical strategy of the EU now in place. The European expert group on orphan drug incentives was set up last year to try to bring forward some innovative proposals to stimulate research and new therapies. Shortly, you're going to hear a presentation of the expert group's overall 14 key proposals. And then three speakers, three of the experts, will give deeper dives into some of those proposals. We'll run a couple of polls to see what you think will be the most appropriate proposals uh, to chase up. And we'll have some discussions with key players in all of this, including from the European Commission and the European Parliament. There will be a chance to put your questions to our panel and you can do this by clicking the ask button on the right of your screen. Do submit the questions as they occur to you, we'll take them later on after the panel discussion and endeavour to get through as many as we can. But first, it's my great pleasure to introduce to you our keynote speaker. She is Camilla Harder-Hardwig, Senior Vice President, international business at Alexion, which is a pharmaceutical company specializing in treatments for rare diseases. Camilla, welcome.
1: Thank you, Sue, and thank you for the introduction and welcome to all of the panelists and attendees here today. We highly appreciate the opportunity to engage in a discussion with such a diverse panel and audience, including those who matter most, the patients themselves. And it's with the patients in mind that we are actually here today to discuss ways to improve the lives of those living with rare conditions by addressing unmet needs and transforming the European OMP landscape. To achieve this a year ago, the European expert group on orphan drug incentives was established as a multidisciplinary and cross-functional group bringing together representatives of the broad rare disease community i'm really pleased to be here representing the industry voice as one of the six pharmaceutical companies involved in this really important initiative when the expert group was inaugurated at the world orphan drug congress in 2020 our common goal was to become the source of groundbreaking ideas and potential solutions that would provide input to the evaluation of the OMP regulation and ultimately transform the lives of patients. To be successful, it was important that this initiative brought together the broad rare disease community, because it's only by putting together the different stakeholders' experiences and needs that we could actually achieve our initial purpose. So one year later we can say that we have achieved our main objective and this event today is all about presenting the group's activities and results for the first time. So together we set the ground for an innovative and comprehensive rare disease ecosystem through 14 policy recommendations. These recommendations bring together different ideas on how to evolve the European orphan drug landscape in line with the goals of the revision of the OMP and the broader pharmaceutical strategy for Europe. In our view, the ongoing process of evaluation and revision of the OMP regulation offers an opportunity to build on a spirit of multi-stakeholder cooperation, such as the experience of the expert group. And we aim to contribute to the creation of a forward looking, innovation driven and patient centric ecosystem that leads to innovative and safe medicines for people affected by rare diseases in the EU, but also globally. And this is why we are calling for a revision process that acknowledges the success of what has been achieved so far. Because thanks to the OMP regulation and the incentive provided to date, 196 orphan drugs have been approved in the EU for patients who had no treatment option before. And any revision should follow a balanced approach, proposing changes that really improve the the current framework, ensure predictability and sustainability, and allow to address the remaining shortcomings. However, we are obviously aware that our initiative will only bear fruits if translated into concrete actions. Thus, we hope that the Commission and the European Parliament, who are both represented here today by Olga Solomon and Dolores Montserrat, will share and support our objectives and proposals. Both EU institutions have been very active and committed to rare diseases, and we are confident they will continue to play a fundamental role to ensure that Europe will remain a leader in research and innovation of orphan medicines to guarantee best patient care. There's still a large and huge unmet need in rare diseases. Patients and their families deserve to receive an effective treatment for their condition and the best possible care. And I believe it is our shared responsibility as a society to enable this. As a company dedicated to the development of orphan drugs, Election stands ready to offer our support and expertise in ensuring the best and most effective revision to the regulation. And I'm very much looking forward to the discussions to come today. And once again, thank you very much for having me and participating in this meeting today. I think it's back to you, Sue, but I can't hear you.
0: (laughs) I don't know. I don't think it's a webinar, Camilla, unless we have somebody, ideally the host, who (laughs) remains muted for a moment. (laughs) Thank you very much (laughs) for those observations. And it was really interesting to to hear your thoughts there. You, of course, Camilla, lead the commercial organisation of Alexian across international markets. Why, in your opinion, does the revision of the OMP regulation in Europe require this balanced approach? I mean, what risks or opportunities would you see for orphan drug companies like yours now?
1: So, um, orphan drug companies operate, honestly, in a very complex and high-risk environment. And when it comes to the regulatory framework, we honestly need sustainability and predictability so that we can plan and execute long investment cycles that are needed to build successful pipelines of potential rare disease medicines. And that is why it is so critical to make sure that we continue to ensure the great support for orphan drug companies in Europe that we have seen so far, while at the same time providing additional incentives to be able to reach out to more difficult areas which remain unaddressed as of now.
0: And you mentioned there about the importance of the multi-stakeholder consensus that should drive any discussions about the revision of the OMP regulations. So how would you describe the value of the work of the expert group in this regard?
1: So the origin of the current EU OMP regulation was built on the basis of a multi-stakeholder consensus and the shared vision for the future. We need exactly the same spirit today, 20 years later. And that is why it is so great to see the expert group creating such a multi-stakeholder engagement platform for the past year. It is really inspiring to see that this group has been able to incorporate perspectives of all of these different stakeholders in a very holistic approach and deliver a very compelling set of recommendations. And
0: you say it's holistic, you say the work is inspiring. If if there's one of the proposals that you would pick out
1: as the most important, which one would it be? So um, there are 14 recommendations spanning across the pharmaceutical value chain. Now, in my opinion, it is actually critically important to understand the success in the area of rare diseases fully depends on the ability to support the entire value chain. Starting from research and development, going through regulatory and HTA processes, and finishing with market and patient access. If sufficient incentives are provided at each step of the process, I think we will certainly be able to face the challenges that are ahead of us as orphan drug companies and as a society. And in the end, we all have one common goal, and that is to deliver hope to as many rare disease patients as possible out there who are not served today. So thank you, Sue. Camilla,
0: thank you very much indeed for your insights there. Do stay with us for our discussions to hear what others are going to be saying. And of course, given that context then, What are these key proposals from the European Expert Group on Orphan Drug Incentives? You mentioned the 14 there. Well, to tell us about it, to reveal all, a little bit of a scoop today, we have Julia Wall. She is the Managing Economist at Copenhagen Economics. They're the knowledge partner supporting the expert group in delivering um, these proposals and developing them. Julia, over to you.
2: Thanks, So It's really good to be here. Before I present our report and findings, let me just say that working with the experts has been truly inspirational and enriching for all of us at Copenhagen Economics, for the entire team, because their different perspectives on the development of of medicinal products just gave us the chance to really understand the breadth of the issues that are at stake with the OLP regulation revision. And I will just give you an overview and then we actually get the chance to hear from some of our experts. Um, I'm very happy about that as well. So if you can put up the slides, Thank you very much. And um, let's go to the the first slide, which just gives you an overview of what is it actually that we have in this report. Um, We first take a look back and analyze uh, what has been achieved so far. Then we set out some principles that a policy revision should ideally be guided by. And finally, we identify our four main needs of the OMP incentive framework today and make those 40 policy proposals to address them. Next slide, please. A look back. At the outset, the OMP regulation, as Camilla just said it, was put into place to help address insufficient medicine development in the area of rare diseases by means of targeted incentives and policy measures. Over 20 years later, the question is then whether we have actually achieved that goal. We find that the OMP regulation has been a success for development of, of medicines because in the last 20 years we have seen an increase in research and development activity and an according increase in the number of authorized treatments, which you see on the left-hand side here. But unmet needs still exist and many rare diseases and many rare disease patients still do not have treatment, uh, the treatment that they need. The figure that is mentioned most in this context is that 95% of rare diseases still have no authorized treatments. We find that the lack of research and development is particularly concentrated in specific disease areas with pediatric patients, and mostly concerns the rarest among the rare diseases, where we still see very little research and development. Importantly, having one authorized treatments on the market um, does not mean that patient needs are met because oftentimes treatments are not transformative or curative treatments. So the challenge is both to develop treatments where there are none, but it is also to achieve that continuous innovation for better and more effective treatments for rare disease patients. So, what can policymakers do to meet this challenge? This is what we worked on with the expert group, and the group did not only develop policy proposals, but also put together some guiding principles that informed our work and that we believe will also deliver good outcomes in the policy revision if they are followed by policymakers. And this is what you see on this slide here. Unfortunately, I don't have the time to go through all of them, but I will briefly highlight two of them starting with principle number C actually uh, saying that we have to think about policy changes from an investment perspective. This principle asks us to recognize that in the EU's innovation model, OMP development is mostly driven by private companies that need to attract investments into their development projects, that rely on very important groundwork done by researchers and that need to interact, to collaborate and to partner with many important stakeholders along the way. And in such a framework, if you want to improve incentives for OMP development where previously insufficient research and development has taken place, then this is about improving the investment case for OMPs. That goes either by reducing costs, by reducing risk or making risk more controllable, or by improving the chances of getting a return on investment. Any revision then really needs to be guided by how changes in policy will affect the investment case, will improve the investment case, especially in underserved areas. And this is where the first principle, uh, number A, uh, comes in, namely that a real improvement of OMP development incentives can only be achieved if the policy revision looks holistically at the entire OMP development path, from basic research over the regulatory pathway to market access, and identifies the barriers to OMP development on that path, and then sets policy measures and incentives accordingly. So anything that happens on that development path really shapes and sets incentives for OMP development and therefore the report urges policymakers to look beyond what is strictly in scope in the OMP regulation revision, to look beyond the simple uh, incentives such as the number of years of market exclusivity and to think about what can be improved about the entire framework of OMP development. And this is what we think will make the difference here and this is also what the expert group has done. If you go to the next slide please. This is where you see the result of our work in in one shot and due to technical difficulties with the platform, it might appear a little bit blurry uh, to some of you. So in that case, feel free to also download the slides for yourself where I think there's a link in the the chat um, and to to look at them um, uh, on your own screen. But what you see here is the OMP development path uh, from basic research to patient access the different needs that we've identified along the path and then the corresponding proposals. The ones marked in blue can be addressed within the OMP regulation framework. The others will need different action beyond the regulation. Before I go into them, there's two important things that I'd like to mention. The first thing is that many of the policy solutions actually build on existing structures and initiatives. So we're not starting from scratch. Secondly, many solutions actually open up for a more modulated approach, where some of the OMS, OMP development projects would get a higher level of incentives precisely because something additional will be needed if we want to address the 95%. So I'm going to move through the needs from the left to the right and, and, and through the policy proposals. The first need that we identified is the need of improving the research and development ecosystem for basic research and company take-up of development. And this need recognizes that novel treatment uh, development really hinges on having that strong basic research pipeline that has to also have a translational character for companies to take it up. Today, both aspects are hampered in Europe because rare disease research is too dispersed securing funding for it is too difficult and often research is just not far enough for a company to take it up into development the experts make four proposals to change the situation the creation of a rare disease hub that enables more systematic collaboration and data sharing between all actors involved in research and development guidance and incentives to make basic research more translational a dedicated private public partnership fund that will allow for more systematic funding of r&d and the establishment of a coherent policy framework for the use of real-world evidence. The second need that we identified is the need for novel financial incentives and rewards that we require to address areas where currently too little development takes place, As with the current level of financial incentives and here we propose to still build on the main incentives that's currently in the regulation so that is market exclusivity but to add also incentives for those priority areas where particularly a little development is taking place such as a transferable voucher system. The third need is to increase the flexibility and predictability of the regulatory pathway, which will greatly contribute to minimizing cost, time and risk of OMP development. Four policy proposals will help with that. Strengthening the European Medicines Agency's role in advising OMP developers is one of them and that goes by increasing opportunities for flexible interactions and dialogue throughout between the developer and and the authority. The second is increasing the legal certainty around the concept of significant benefit and making sure that it carries over also as a value mark into the market access stage. The third is producing as much as possible any challenges that undermine the strength of the market exclusivity incentives today, such as the widespread use of off-label treatments and hospital compounding where authorized treatments exist. And finally, we also encourage policymakers to devise special regulatory pathways in areas where research and development is particularly difficult. The final need is need number four, which recognizes that the demand for and the pricing of OMPs set key incentives for OMP development and that a true improvement of incentives also means tackling the challenges that come from the demand side, even though they are not formally covered by the OMP regulation at the European level. We find that the current market access system uh, in Europe could benefit from greater predictability and more alignment uh, among countries, but also with the earlier stages of the OMP development path. And here we propose to install an iterative dialogue between the EMA, HDA bodies and OMP developers that just allows early alignment on the needed evidence, for instance, to support the value assessment of treatments. We also propose a common value assessment for OMPs at EU level. Finally, we also recognize that there is a link between strong demand-side incentives and the need for equal access to OMPs. And we have developed two proposals to tackle that need. First, piloting a common EU access pathway, a common price negotiation, if you will, for those OMPs for which access is particularly challenging, for instance, in the ultra-orphan space. And secondly, a special access program that will reward those OMP developers that commit to launching their product more broadly in the European Union. Now, I've given you a quick overview about the 14 different policy proposals. Let me say thank you and then hand back over to you, Sue, to introduce our experts. (laughs)
0: apologies, it's me again, isn't it? So, Julia, just to say thank you very much indeed for your uh, explanation there of the fantastic work that the expert group has done and uh, in terms of putting an overview on on what must have been a very extensive piece of work. So we're going to take a, a closer look now at some of those proposals, hearing from members of the expert group. First, we've got Dr. Lucia Monaco. She is the chair of the IRDIRC, that's the International Rare Diseases Research Consortium. Dr. Lucia Monaco, over to you now. Thank you very much, Sue. Uh, I'm very pleased to be
3: presenting uh, two of the recommendations uh, with uh, some more details, but quite quickly, I would say. Uh, If we may have the slides, please. I have chosen to start with the very first two recommendations. They are at the beginning of the value chain of the development path for orphan medicinal products. And so they respond to this holistic approach that Julia has been describing that is so important for the innovative approach that the expert group has taken. In particular, these two um, recommendations address uh, the first need of improving the rare disease uh, um, uh, R&D ecosystem for basic research. And the first one regards uh, the form- formation of uh, a European rare disease uh, hub for larger scale collaboration, sharing and uh, generation of data and diagnosis. Uh, The starting point is the acknowledgement uh, that for too many diseases, uh, as uh, Sue mentioned, um, there is uh, still no knowledge, no basic knowledge on the disease mechanism. And that uh, would make it impossible to develop treatments for them. But also, when uh, such uh, knowledge is present, very often it is uh, scattered and not equally accessible by all stakeholders. So the recommendation is uh, to develop uh, a a rare disease uh, hub that uh, would uh, respond uh, to the goal of uh, enabling a coordination of uh, the research uh, efforts, uh, the optimal use of resources, um, and uh, to enable faster and broader take up of clinical development by companies for that uh, research that is already ready for these uh, development steps. But also to allow uh, the basic research to be better aligned with uh, the needs uh, for clinical development. Of course, uh, this uh, um, is uh, based on uh, existing resources. will not uh, start from scratch. And this is another very important uh, principle that has been applied by the expert group. In particular, uh, this uh, proposal builds uh, on uh, existing resources uh, such as uh, the European Joint Programme on Rare Diseases that is now coordinating coordinating a major effort on rare diseases throughout Europe, Uh, builds uh, on the expertise of the 24 European reference networks and on tools already developed by previous uh, programs uh, such as RD Connect, Uh, now being exploited in the EJP um, virtual platform or on uh, the European rare disease platform uh, by the Commission's Joint Research Centre. It's important also to consider that uh, in order to uh, build such a hub, it it will be important also to accompany this uh, action uh, by proper incentives, for instance, Incentives uh, for data sharing by making it mandatory that data sharing principles are applied in a research projects so that uh, will be uh, financed. The second um, uh, recommendation that I will briefly touch upon regards uh, providing guidance and incentives for translation of basic research. And it is, uh, again, a principle that has been mentioned already in the introduction, uh, based on the acknowledgement that basic research is taking place in Europe, but very often it is not ready to be taken up by companies. And that requires guidance and requires also incentives. Again, uh, we want to build on existing resources, for instance, on the Orphan Drug Development Guide that has been uh, prepared and and built by the International Rare Disease Consortium, IRDRC, and is uh, now available to the community, but also on other IRDRC initiatives that are specifically addressing uh, the topic of uh, neglected diseases, or the, uh, the needs of making the results of basic research Uh, interesting and uh, um, uh, important for companies for uh, development. Um, Again, incentives here could be applied uh, at the funding level so that uh, the research that is being proposed for funding already includes those uh, uh, elements that make it ready then for further development. I stop here. Unfortunately, the time is very limited. But uh, I think that this provides really the basis for the development of the other recommendations. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you very much, uh, Lucia. That was very helpful. And yes, we're asking you to skim through. Uh, but thank you very much for that detail and, and those recommendations. Most interesting to hear. So now let's turn to another of the expert group. Uh, we have Simon Bennett, who is the Director, Global Regulatory Policy for the EU at the company Biogen. Over to you.
4: Thank you, Sue. Um, good afternoon, everyone. Um, I'm very excited to be here at this launch event. So uh, and. Um, What I'm going to talk about building on the, uh, what you've already heard from Julia and Lucia is just to move a little bit further down the value chain and spend a few minutes providing a little more background on two of the policy proposals included in the paper. The ones that I'm going to focus on are related to regulatory aspects and specifically focus on improving the flexibility, predictability, efficiency of the regulatory pathway for orphan medicinal products in order to better accommodate the unique needs associated with development of treatments in this area. The first policy proposal concerns strengthening the role of the European Medicines Agency, the EMA, in its advisory role to OMP developers, developers of orphan medicinal products throughout the development pathway. The EMA is a very important actor in the development of medicines for rare diseases. They do much more than simply review the marketing authorisation application. Indeed, the EMA, together with its scientific committees and working parties, important touch points during the entire product development cycle from initial orphan designation through marketing authorization to post licensing. In this role the EMA is able to provide guidance and insights to medicine developers through the established scientific advice procedure which in the case of orphan medicinal products is known as protocol assistance. Whilst this model allows for the regulator and the medicine developer to interact on specific questions, during drug development, it's a somewhat rigid framework and the cure opportunities for extended dialogue. Strengthening the EMA's advisory role in the area of rare diseases and improving cooperation is a way to introduce flexibility and increase predictability in the regulatory aspects of the development pathway so that they better fit the needs of orphan medicinal products. As part of this, we believe that it's important to establish an iterative scientific advice framework for rare diseases both for regulatory and scientific topics, where the opportunity would exist for less formal cumulative dialogue between the regulators and the medicine developer. This is particularly important for OMP uh, or for medicinal products. The particular value of scientific advice is in areas where you're developing innovative medicines that are targeting disease areas with few guidelines or unconventional studies are planned, which I think we'll all agree are criteria which apply to the study of rare diseases. Strengthening, in our opinion, um, in our view, an iterative scientific advice framework would allow a more efficient exchange of information between all the parties, strengthening predictability. Within the paper, you'll have more details about this proposal, but we do acknowledge that the implementation of such a model in the rare disease area may pull on the EMA's resources. But in practice, it could be uh, in practice could supplement or lean on some of the measures already implemented as part of the EMA's priority medicine scheme. We are also proposing to strengthen the committee for that we should strengthen the committee for orphan medicinal products, the COMP, and improve its alignment with the committee for medicinal products for human use, the CHMP. We believe these are areas that should also be considered. The COMP itself plays a crucial role since it's the body that's best positioned to understand the challenges associated with the development of orphan medicinal products. We believe that the COMP should be sufficiently resourced with broad expertise and also the ability to pull on specialized experts when needed to ensure that the optimal regulatory pathway can be utilized by medicine developers in rare diseases. Additionally, a strengthened comp could play a more prominent role in closely following OMPs throughout the all stages of the regulatory pathway and aligning on issues and problematic areas with the CHMP at an early stage. Just briefly, I'd like to also cover the second policy proposal that's on the slide. This concerns adapting the regulatory pathway to the specificities of orphan medicinal products and reflects two areas where a pragmatic approach may be needed. There are two key areas that are relevant here. Firstly, OMPs being developed in areas of extremely rare diseases could benefit from a tailored regulatory pathway to account for the very small patient numbers that often make standard clinical development impossible. One way to address this may be to recognize extremely rare diseases as part of a large group of similar diseases, perhaps building on some of the early proposals in the paper around work to be done by the Rare Diseases Hub and by the European Reference Network. By addressing the issue in this way, there will be a broader basis for the regulators to make a benefit to risk assessment, while also going some way to addressing some of the issues that we see with small populations. Finally, the current regulatory framework could also be improved in respect to the registration of multi-indication orphan medicinal products, whereby a single medicinal product has the potential to treat more than one indication in in an orphan condition. Currently, currently the extension of an orphan medicinal product can only be included in the marketing authorization if the new indication also has an orphan designation and that designation is maintained at the time of approval of the new indication. This creates uncertainty for medicine developers and hinders the research and development into new orphan indications for marketed products. Addressing this would be a pragmatic and relatively straightforward way of, of of alleviating some of this uncertainty. So to con- to conclude as Lucia says these are these we only had the opportunity to sort of skim through the policy proposals but I hope I've given you some insight um but it's important as as Camilla said at the start that they're not viewed in isolation but viewed as a broader holistic approach to incentivizing medicine development in rare diseases I'll hand that back to Sue thank you
0: Thank thank you very much, Simon, for that regulatory and industry perspective. And now the third of our experts. Uh, Please welcome Professor Michael Schlander, who is a professor of health economics at the University of Heidelberg, also head of division of health economics at the German Cancer Research Center, DKFZ. Professor.
5: Thank you, Sue. Um, I hope uh, you can all hear me. And uh, you will see that uh, I, am, I have been asked to talk about one of these 14 recommendations. So it may, may, may look like uh, this is going to be a simple presentation, but I have to warn you, make no mistake. Uh, this is uh, a fairly complex uh, issue that we are tackling, uh, that uh, beyond uh, and picking up on what Simon in particular said uh, before, um, the regulatory pathway that leads to marketing authorization. But that does not meet, uh, mean automatically patient access to treatment. Uh, there is yet another hurdle, and uh, this refers to uh, pricing negotiations, to reimbursement decisions, uh, to coverage by, uh, by a health scheme of an orphan medicinal product. And these processes are typically guided in the European countries uh, by a process that we refer to as HTA, uh, Health Technology Assessment. And uh, you could imagine that uh, this is another hurdle that uh, a developer of a new product has to take successfully. Uh, Otherwise, uh, all the effort that has been invested before will be uh, for nothing at the end of the day, will be of no use. Um, So it's, of course, at the same time, not only about market access, it's also about striking a balance between uh, Uh, setting limits, on the other hand, and affordability uh, as a concern of uh, payers. Can we afford uh, what's uh, being brought to the market? Uh, So uh, it's a difficult issue. Um, And we have heard about uh, the concerns regarding uh, the uncertainty of the drug development process, the risk of failure. Um, We have heard about the time requirement and actually HTA processes add to both to the time as well as to the risk of failure to reach patients at the end of the day and it's further adding out-of-pocket costs uh, to the manufacturers and developers. All of these have to be recouped somehow, Uh, otherwise uh, we, uh, we don't have incentives to develop new orphan medicinal products. And uh, you could imagine that uh, when we talk about uh, smaller and smaller uh, numbers of patients, in particular, we are moving to the field of ultra rare disorders, maybe disorders uh, that have a prevalence of uh, one in 50,000, uh, which is uh, the usual qualifier uh, for that category, uh, then uh, we, we face uh, the situation that uh, relatively high cost of development meets a small number of patients and that translates immediately into pricing issues. So what what to do about that? Uh, Of course, we want to know about what value is being provided by these products and that value assessment is at this stage a process that is very heterogeneous that is scattered across countries. And at the end of the day, if we have 20 different or 20 and plus X different processes in the member countries of the European Union, Um, this can hardly be an efficient process. It can hardly be a risk-reducing process. It can hardly be a process that is fast. Uh, So there is clearly a case uh, to reduce the risk, to reduce the effort uh, by having a common European process, in particular when it comes to orphan medicinal products. Um, And of course, this should build on established uh, principles for and processes for uh, early dialogue between uh, regulatory bodies, like uh, the EMA, uh, but also regarding uh, the UNETA framework, for example, where European health technology agencies cooperate with each other. Um, Now, that is one thing, the process part. There's a case for harmonization, obviously. Yet there is another pitfall. Um, We could do all the same, but yet we might do the wrong thing, actually, altogether. And uh, this refers to the specificities of rare diseases and how they are reflected in the process. Um, Roughly speaking, we could uh, distinguish between uh, uh, one pillar of health technology assessment that is related to proving clinical effectiveness. Um, That is uh, perhaps uh, the least controversial one, um, except for the fact uh, that. it may become increasingly difficult to provide the level of evidence that we are used uh, in diabetes and hypertension, uh, in other uh, highly prevalent uh, disorders uh, when it comes to small patient numbers. But yet uh, we can essentially follow the similar principles. Uh, We still rely on randomized clinical trials. Uh, There has been talk about how can we make effective use of real world evidence to supplement that. Uh, I think there is a case uh, to uh, insist on uh, a a clear case for clinical value. But of course, clinical value is not yet economic value. And uh, this part of the equation is the tricky one, Uh, because uh, if you look at uh, the current mainstream in applied health economics, not necessarily in academic health economics, but for sure in the applied branch uh, that has found its way into many HTA systems, uh, most prominently in the UK, but also in Nordic countries, uh, in variants also in the Netherlands, for example. Um, we rely on the so-called cost-effectiveness analysis, an approach that has high face validity. It seems highly plausible, but it has a number of uh, limitations. And one of the limitations is Uh, it restricts the perspective on value to the improvement in length of life and quality of life per patient. And we express that in a ratio that we call incremental cost-effectiveness ratio. Around that um, uh, ratio, uh, much of the uh, conventional analysis uh, revolves. And uh, that ratio has one major disadvantage. And the disadvantage is, uh, if you look at marginal effect, the improvement in effect related to improvement in cost. How much additional cost for how much additional length of life or quality of life do we do we need to expand? Then you can easily see, and uh, we don't have the time to, to, to elaborate on that in more detail, but you can easily see that if we uh, use such a ratio as uh, the yardstick, the number of patients will cancel out because you have the number of patients both in the numerator as well as in the denominator uh, or, in other words, uh, any potential impact of rarity, or in other words, the prevalence of a disorder, uh, will by definition be excluded from that kind of analysis. And that obviously does not do justice to the orphan drug space, uh, simply because of the fact that even if drug development costs may be relatively lower than that for um, other disorders, Uh, it still is a relatively high fixed cost and it translates into increasing cost per patient. And this needs to be reflected uh, in prices and in in the reimbursement decisions and also in the HTA framework. How does that relate back to the value component? Um, It can be resolved as soon as we recognize that uh, social value, to have access to certain interventions, to certain healthcare interventions, is not only a function of the individual gain in length of life and quality of life, but there are also components like uh, adding, ver- placing value on giving priority to those with severe disorders or not leaving behind those with, who are unfortunate enough to have a rare disorder and combine these are not so few uh, people in the, in the European Union, obviously. If we place value as a society on these components of social value, uh, then Uh, the focus, of course, will have to change from cost per patient to the cost per program, or in other words, the budget impact. Uh, So from a health economics perspective, um, the economic assessment makes a lot of sense. And I do believe we need to find a balance between uh, cost on the one hand and value on the other. But we should avoid uh, uh, simply adopting a reductionist approach that, by definition, rules out any potential impact of prevalence and therefore gravity. Um, so, uh, this is something uh, that needs to be taken into account when we move towards harmonisation, which we should all agree. Thank you,
0: Professor Slander, Thank you, thank you very much indeed for for those insights. That's really helpful. Uh, we're hoping that there'll be all sorts of questions that your presentations have have stimulated. So. For all of you out there who are taking such a keen interest in this, please do submit your questions. You can do so by clicking on the Ask button um, on the right-hand side of the screen, and we will uh, be giving you a chance to put those questions to the panel, and I think some of our experts might be lurking and staying with us, so if you had anything specifically for them as well. But we do have um, a fantastic panel coming up. And Thank you very much to those experts for for those overviews. Now, some of those proposals can be addressed in the context of OMP regulation revision, which is currently ongoing. So let's now launch a poll to ask you, the audience, which one of these do you think most would be most impactful? You'll find the poll at the bottom of the chat box on the right side of the screen. So take a moment, if you would, to locate the poll and we'll ask uh, these questions now. So uh, the first option is modulate market exclusivity based on agreed criteria. Or do you think it's introduced additional incentives such as transferable vouchers? Perhaps you feel the most important is to increase legal certainty around the concept of significant benefit. Or what about the adapting the regulatory pathway to the specificities of OMPs? Now, I believe that everybody could see the poll running now, and we'll just let that run for a few moments um, to see which of those that you feel is most helpful and would have more impact. If you could vote please on those and uh, let's see how many of those are going to get votes. We'll let this run just for a very short time. And now let's have a look at the uh, results of that first poll. I have to make this a little bit bigger here so that I can see it. So it looks like the most likely option to have the most impact is the final one of those options, adapting the regulatory pathway to the specificities. And then that was followed by increasing legal certainty. So that's really interesting to to hear, and we'll be putting that to our panel. But just before that, we have a second poll. If you'd also, now you've found the buttons and you know how it's working. Um, In our second poll, we want to ask you, What aspect of the rare disease therapy's life cycle should we prioritise to tackle patient unmet needs in Europe? The options are there. Is it to improve the R&D ecosystem for basic research and take-up of development? Perhaps enhance the system of financial incentives and rewards? Or do you think it's to increase flexibility, predictability and the speed of the EU regulatory pathway? The fourth option is you could choose increased coherence and predictability of demand and pricing for OMPs. So again, if you just take a moment to uh, have a look at those, vote on that, and uh, the poll on there, and we'll just have a look and see. And it's going to be very interesting, I think, to put the results of that to uh, our panel in a moment. So which of those four? We're not going to leave it for very long because we want to get onto our panel. Malta, do we have any results from our second poll yet? Please, let's have a look. Anything coming in? Okay, so on this, it's the first of those options which seems to have, is re- improving the research and development ecosystem for basic research and take up of, of development. So thank you all for voting on those. And I'm very keen to hear what our panel are going to make of it. So. Let me now introduce our panel to you. We have Ms. Olga Solomon, who is the head of unit DG Sante at the European Commission. We have Mr. Jan Lecam, the CEO of Eurodis, that's representing patients with rare diseases across Europe. Also, uh, Dr. Alexander Natz, he's the Secretary General of EUCOPE, the European Confederation for Pharmaceutical Entrepreneurs. Also, we're delighted to have support from many MEPs. Camilla mentioned Dolores Montserrat, who's been very supportive, and we're delighted now today to have with us the MEP Penel Weiss, who's with EPP in Denmark and is the shadow rapporteur of the European Parliament's ITRA uh, committee, which is Industry, Research and Energy. Um, And very welcome to you all. It's fantastic that you've all joined us. So very briefly, if you would, each of you, I'd love to hear what did you make of those poll results of of how people voted? Uh, Perhaps Olga Solomon, if I could ask you first, what, what did you make of those decisions?
6: Yeah, I think, thank you very much, Sue, and I'm very happy to be with you this afternoon. Actually, you know, it's uh, interesting to see, you know, this um, um, this voting, and uh, I must say that, you know, I wouldn't be surprised because, you know, flexibility and predictability, it's something that we can expect, especially, you know, as a reply from industry to operate in an effective way, and also, you know, research, you know, and development and early, you know, the uh, improvement of the uh, research system, it's something that uh, um, it is very important for the development of innovative medicine. So, you know, very important points, not unique ones, you know, and not unexpected, I would say, you know, results. Thank
0: you. Benel Weiss, what do you make of those uh, results? Do we have?
7: Yeah. I am here. I just uh, (laughs) had to unmute myself. Sorry.
0: (laughs) Oh, look, look, hey.
2: I'm the expert there. (laughs) No.
7: Thank you for inviting me. And thank you also for uh, very good and interesting contributions from uh, uh, the experts. I have made a lot of notes for our. Uh, uh work right now uh, in the Parliament uh, working with the uh, pharmaceutical uh, strategy but to comment the results uh, very shortly um, I as in, coming from the ETRUS perspective, also being a member of envy and having a background as a health scientist and and nurse uh, what strikes me from the results is that addressing the market mechanisms, beneath orphan medicines development, um, needs to be uh, reboots uh, in a way. Uh, I very much share uh, the opinion on the ecosystem, uh, and also the uptake uh, from research uh, to business. Uh, but I also see that we have an extra job to do actually in the European Parliament, to focus on these aspects. Because uh, also, as said by uh, Professor uh, Shelanda, uh, the, uh, the health assessment methodology is actually, the framework is not uh, um, the best for the orphan drugs, as I understood. Uh, uh, so um, what puzzles me is the industry policy uh, um, uh, equation uh, around uh, the, the orphan medicines uh, production. And um, Is in need for uh, um, more debate and also a more constructive uh, uh, um, revision. uh, I would say uh, from my side. Thank you for now.
0: For that. Jan Le Cam, of, of those results there on them, I'm not sure that you as the speakers were seeing those results on the screen. Um, the first one then saying that the uh, adapting the regulatory pathway uh, came out top and then the second one was improving the R&D ecosystem. Jan, what do you make of that?
8: I make, <clears throat> I'm not surprised, but I find the answers a bit conservative. Um, looking at the at regulatory and ecosystem of research is is good, but it's talking about what we know, not enough, maybe about where we need to go, meaning that regulatory is important. What we want to improve now is the seamless process between regulatory to HTA with common clinical assessment and its collaboration between member states on on access, as uh, the ambition is into the EU pharmaceutical strategy and also in the recent conclusions of the EU presidency of Portugal to increase collaboration between pricing reimbursement authorities of member states in certain areas. But for the second question on the ecosystem, research ecosystem, surely very important, but we need to think ecosystem more broadly. It's also about ecosystem in industry, and in fact, there is a cluster of health ecosystem at the the commission now uh, for industry with all the dimension of research, but also of investments and also of markets, et cetera. And in the case of rare diseases, to bring together research, healthcare, and all all the data dimension in, 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 in the middle with the new digital technology and health data analytics which are essential all, all along the life cycle of the product development, at the from the early stage and, and from phase one coming to human studies, and after that up to marketing realization and after on real-world dividends, as it was elegantly presented in the, by the previous speakers. So ecosystem Thank,
0: well, Thank you, Jan. It's interesting to, to hear all your responses to those poll results. Uh, as the process of OMP regulation is being revised, let's ask um, Olga Solomon, this is ongoing, um, being led by DG Sante. what can we expect in terms of next steps with this process?
6: Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Sue. Actually, you know, um, again, I think that uh, before I go to the process, I would like, you know, I heard, you know, with a lot of interest, you know, the uh, Julia presenting the results, you know, and, you know, other colleagues presenting the results of this very interesting uh, work that it has been done in the past year or so from the expert group. And uh, for us in the commission, you know, to hear this is, you know, extremely important because, uh, you know, it is a process that we have started since some Years, I mean, uh, uh, some of the um, elements, you know, of this work that the the, uh, expert group done, you know, they reflect also, you know, a much more thorough analysis that we have done with the evaluation of the uh, orphan and pediatric legislation. And um, uh, so this is the past, you know, we have identified as, uh, you know, it was mentioned before, a lot of positive actually, you know, from the functioning of this regulation in the past years, but also, you know, some uh, uh, some weaknesses. So um, basically, you know, it's very exciting that, you know, that we hear today the um, some uh, policy suggestions, you know, with regard to how to solve these uh, problems, and um, uh, actually, you know, we ourselves, you know, we are in a phase, you know, where we examining based on the evaluation and the results of the evaluations, which actually, you know, I would welcome people to look at because it's a very, you know, and um, uh, complex and not complex analysis, a good analysis of complex issues, actually. So, based on this evidence that we gathered for years, now we are moving on on policy options, and we are at the stage of an impact assessment. So, in that particular moment, you know, these proposals, you know, they become extremely extremely. extremely useful. Uh, One thing that I would like to actually highlight it is uh, because uh, many of the previous speakers, you know, highlighted, you know, the landscape and, you know, the complexity of uh, this uh, landscape. I would like to give, you know, another insight, you know, from the Commission, and uh, obviously, the group is very representative of many stakeholders and, you know, very important stakeholders. But I would like to give, you know, another angle, you know, as well, an additional angle in the um, revision, the review of the legislation, as we see it from the commission perspective, because um, uh, we hear also, you know, from member states, from health systems, from payers, health technology assessment bodies, etc. cetera. So um, I heard, you know, very much to highlight it in the work which was done by the group that, you know, there is uh, that there is a need for a holistic policy framework for uh, the development of uh, orphan medicines and um, fostering investment and innovation as we heard you know and we very much agree with that is a key objective for any policy initiative in this field especially you know when research is done in europe we want to keep research in europe we want to to foster it but at the same time, you know, I must, um, you know, say uh, that investment perspective is one of the elements of a complex puzzle. You know, uh, we need been in the middle of the different um, actually views. You know, we hear that you know we need to deal with many more issues that have surfaced in the past years. I heard, you know, um, you know, it also, you know. Probably we didn't hear so much about availability and affordability of medicines, which are key pieces of uh, the same puzzle. Uh, We have to ask ourselves, what is the value of innovation if it does not reach patients who suffer from rare diseases wherever they are in the EU in an equitable way? This is another question, you know, which is extremely important for us. Medicines are not any goods and patients uh, suffering from rare diseases are not consumers with choices. So another issue that you know I didn't hear in this discussion, or it is actually you know relevant with the discussion that you know we heard about you know value. It is the transparency because we heard about you know the importance of um, a value based approach. You know, but uh, you know this uh, we uh, it is related to cost as we heard before. You know, and what. Uh, Member states, you know, are uh, another stakeholders. You know, I mean, and stakeholders are complaining sometimes about It is about the transparency, of course. You know, the legislation was based also in a system, you know, where actually incentives were given for return of investment. But you know, through even through the evaluation, we didn't manage to actually achieve, to uh, uh, find much about the cost of um, you know research in this area, which is a very important element in this equation. So um in this so we found all uh these elements that come from the reflection of the group extremely important in this actually change of different issues. And, uh, you know, with regard to the process, um, I think that you know, also we've mentioned pricing and reimbursement. Some of these policies, we have to remember that, you know, they are national policies, so we have to respect the limits. However, Jan mentioned, and it is very important, we have also the pharmaceutical strategy, so it's not only the review of orphan and pediatrics. You know, we are looking in a more, uh, you know, uh, policy intervention, which is wider, including for orphan medicines, and we are looking, you know, in many different issues, and how also to um, support, you know, more. The, um, uh, how can I say, you know, more uh, cooperation in in this sense, also between different decision makers. Uh, we are uh, now at the stage of the impact assessment and the uh, legislative proposal is expected in 2022. Uh, it is very important to um, mention as well that uh, at this point, you know, we are consulting stakeholders. So basically, you know, the voice of um, uh, of all stakeholders, it will be uh, very important for us through public consultation and targeted consultation and uh, we are also engaging, obviously, you know, with the public authorities, with regulators, HTA bodies, and payers. So this is you from my side. I'm sorry, I took a bit longer, but it was just <laughs> a reflection also on what we heard today.
0: It's really helpful, Olga. Thank you very much indeed. And I'd be interested to hear now from Dr. Alexander. And that's um, you've picked on so many points there, Olga. The the two poll uh, results there, the regulatory emphasis and the R&D ecosystem, Um, what do you make of that? Uh, And and what about what uh, Professor Schlander was saying earlier about getting uh, the social cost value analysis, um, the the need for real world data? Uh, What do you think, Alexander?
9: Yes, thank you very much. Um, I mean, indeed, it was not surprising Sorry, it's, it was not surprising to see that uh, the regulatory pathway needs to become up to speed with the developments in 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 these uh, uh, policy areas. So I think. That was also something which has been alluded to before. I think predictability has been mentioned. It's very important for industry to have predictable uh, criteria, and that includes uh, significant benefit. We might want to touch on that a bit later, but also on the R&D side. I mean, the, the whole uh, regulation was there to stimulate uh, an investment in, in uh, R&D. So this is really, uh, these are all very important points, and I think it, it was not surprising to see them quite high on the, on, on the ranking. But there are many other points which this multi-stakeholder group, as we have heard of uh, from, from Julia and others before, have been uh, talking about and what we have identified as issues which are critical. And uh, there are also those points uh, which uh, Professor Schlander mentioned on having uh, the white value framework. It's really critical uh, for industry also to be able to to work with uh, real-world evidence. And when talking about real-world evidence, we are not talking about we're replacing clinical uh, trial data. That data is needed for um uh pricing and reimbursement institutions at the national level to make informed decision but i also i don't think it is uh it, it makes any sense to close our eyes for the data which is generated when the product is available in the market we need to listen to uh a patients uh, uh we need to listen to physicians how the product is actually performing when it's rolled out to a wider uh, uh, patient population, because bearing in mind that many of the clinical trials in in rare diseases have uh, are not huge trials because we are talking about a rare disease. So even more in this area, we need to look into real world evidence, and this data is not there to uh, replace uh, clinical trial data, uh, and it needs to be robust data. So we need to have a very clear, uh, robust methodology behind real world evidence in order to really to. Answer the questions some payers and also some some patients have uh, about the performance of that product. But industry is is really willing to to generate this data to make better use of real world evidence. We think it's part of the solution for the future. It's maybe not the only solution. There are other issues as uh, Olga Solomon has been has been mentioning, which are on the table and which need to be discussed. Uh, and also this group, uh, the multi-stakeholder group, has identified. Uh, several other is- uh, issues, but among among the the very important areas from our end is real world evidence. And if I may may make one last point, we also hope that we can have um, a way to really integrate um, the data which uh, EMA asks for, for regulatory purposes, to integrate that with the data the uh, pricing and reimbursement agencies or the HDAs are asking for, because it is really not easy to set up a robust registry, um, which usually runs three to five years. and it's, it's really not possible to do that uh, 10 or 15 times for various different purposes. So we hope we find a balanced and integrated approach in, in making better use of real world data.
0: Thank you. And it's great to see some questions coming in already. We will uh, get to those uh, once we've had a, a chance to put a few more things to our panel, but do keep your questions coming. Thank you very much for submitting those. Uh, it, it, it's interesting then the, the, the emphasis on getting the ecosystem right, getting the regulatory right. Uh, Pernil Weiss, if I can come back to you then, um, in order to build this ecosystem and get the pathways correct, what would you say would be the first step um, to take at an EU level uh, to, to make this happen?
7: Well, that, that's a, a very tricky question because uh, you could fall into the trap and think that it's a linear uh, process that you take one step at a time. but seen from my chair it looks like there is uh, a handful of of initiatives to take to get the uh, the, both the regulatory and also the other uh, initiatives to go more and more in hand and uh, be synchronized uh, in order uh, to uh, not lose speed uh, in order to uh, to address the needs of 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 citizens uh, of rare diseases so uh, when I look at the the draft of uh, the pharma uh, industry uh, strategy as it is right now, uh, I really take on board the ideas coming from uh, Lucia Monaco on the uh, the hop uh, for large scale collaborations uh, because I think one of the things that we can do uh, as parliamentarians is to uh, come up with some concrete solutions in the texts that we negotiate uh, with each other and put forward to the Commission. And I think a hub is, um, as I understand the idea, is is uh, in its concept very relevant uh, in order to 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 um, get the complex system a little bit more in sync and synchronized. Uh, uh to 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 uh, to the the, uh, the to access the speed uh, uh, for 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 the um for, for the citizens but also to um to nurture the market mechanisms uh, if I put on my glasses and as an industry politician that's one thing I think is important the other thing is also that I when I see the draft text uh, for the strategy uh here in the house uh, I miss uh, Also, the idea from uh, Lucinda Monaco on uh, the guidance uh, part of of, uh, uh, lifting uh, basic research uh, uh, towards uh, companies, towards uh, actually uh, being uh, produced. Uh, uh, We can have a lot of incentives and we must also work with a revision of the many incentives. Uh, That's the point uh, at the current state. But also the guidance uh, part is very crucial, uh, seen from my uh, chair. Uh, And as I said also before, when I had the word, I think uh, the the point made by uh, uh, Professor Schrander on the uh, health assessment methodology, uh, the whole framework is not uh, um, uh, numb to uh, the size of of the... uh, of the uh, of the actual uh, patient group uh, so when it comes to rare diseases we need to adjust the equation of of a uh, HTAs methodologies to 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 be relevant uh, for 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 that topic and and also to find the right way to balance up cost and and value assessments uh, against each others uh, so yeah that's my take on on what to do right now not one one there's no silver bullet <laughs>
0: No, Well, thank you for those observations. Jan, Jan, what do you make of that? The idea of this EU hub for rare diseases then seems to be getting the thumbs up. Now, you were involved um, with helping develop the current EU OMP regulatory framework, so perhaps you can see the the big picture on this. Um, It's got to be future-proof then. We've got to look ahead a long way, maybe another 20 years to get these regulations right. So, what would you say are the priorities then for the EU?
8: Absolutely right. First, let me say that we were <coughs> very pleased to uh, co-lead this initiative uh, of the expert group together with UCOP and supported by the Knowledge Consultant, Copenhagen Economics. We uh, we think we have good and interesting uh, outputs there. On on your point, too, the um, yes, we participated 20 years ago. In fact, we advocated in order to have this regulation in Europe. That was 20 years ago. And the revision which is undergoing will have impact for what type of treatments will come and how many treatments will come to patients in Europe in the next 20 years. And in parallel to the work with the Offender Group, we we have been part of a consortium working on a broader picture of looking at the the future at 10, 20 years and the trends. Uh, And we have identified 12 trends and built scenarios and policy recommendations toward 2030. So, in order to design success rather than just uh, go by, by, by pieces. And a key element to highlight, I think, in all these changes is to always remember that this development of medicines are global and the investors are usually acting global. So whatever we change to these legislations and try to improve it to fit for purpose, we always need to keep in mind the regulatory environment in the US and to benchmark it and what's coming up in other parts of the world, particularly in China, which will become a major actor in the next 10 years in in this area. The second, uh, so we need to be very careful, really, on on the eligibility criteria, on the incentives, on the process. Uh, EMA used to be better than FDA. Tomorrow, FDA is catching up. So we need to be better, and we need to turn some of the difficulties of Europe into advantages, like the fragmentation of HTA. Yes, same in the US. So let's get together and have common assessment, as uh, Professor Schander was just saying, we completely support that and have a seamless process, better support from the EMA uh, and, and comp with more responsibility and a rolling on support, uh, regulatory scientific advice, and then get to HDA common assessment and reassessment few years after marketing authorization and coordinate uh, the efforts between pricing reimbursement authorities. The it's a success, the orphan regulation in Europe. So we, we're building on a success. But where we failed is that we have not leveraged in or for Europe, the potential of research, of production in Europe, and and a lot of the invention, scientific advancements have, are then being supported by money in the US and coming back to the market in Europe. So we need to have a better look than that and maybe try to transform more strengths in Europe into an advantage economically in uh, exporting these products to the rest of the world rather than being a second follow-up market to the US. So I think we need to be very attentive to that and Parliament should pay a lot of, of attention to it. The trends of number of products is 600 products now based on a retrospective analysis by Imperial College London, which and a trend of 600 new products in the next 10 years. And if we improve the ecosystem as we were just discussing, we can probably go to 1,000. But the important thing is not the number of 1,000. The important thing is to address unmet medical needs, particularly of the rarest diseases, the one in 50,000, but also the one in 100,000, the one in a million. Only European cooperation can help. It's also to address the therapeutic areas where there is a total lack of investment. And it is also to improve the access, to link incentives to access.
0: Thank you very much. Well, we've got some great questions coming in from the audience. Thank you very much for submitting those. Uh, Let's take this one. I think it's Paul Simmons saying, given that public funding of R&D is infinite, is finite, how does one find the right balance for research on rare diseases and other subjects? Alexandra, is that one for you?
9: We are making also concrete suggestions on how to bring in uh, more um, investment in in R&Ds, and I think I can only echo what was said before especially by Jan this is a is a global uh, um, uh, industry we have to bear in mind that uh, what we are doing here will have implications but also I think we have seen um, even I would say in 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 some of our members we have seen that um, some uh, research has really been uh, going over to the US and we we have not managed to keep that uh, basic research in in Europe, so we have um, programmes at the uh, EU level. We have Horizon 2020. We have um, many initiatives. Um, so I think really we need to make sure that there is predictability, also from the investor perspective, that um, that the investment is secured. And I think one of the major success of of the uh, orphan legislation has definitely been the fact that there was predictability and clearance about um, about um, the exclusivities uh, of the of this 10-year period period. Of course, we need to discuss um, potentially also about modulation. Uh, and I think that has been a part of the discussion here. We need to discuss how can we stimulate an investment also in ultra ultra rare diseases. Uh, We need to see how we better tackle the 95 of where diseases where there is uh, no uh, therapy option uh, available now and where there's not so much in the pipeline. I think this is really, these are really the discussions which we are currently having and it's really um, a pleasure, if I may say that as well, to be part of this multi-stakeholder group uh, and having those discussions uh, because I think we have, uh, they have uh, led to really some fruitful results.
0: Thank you very much indeed. And there's so much content that you've all been going through. It's fantastic. Um, I understand that the audience can now pick up the the report. It's been posted in the chat. So if you want to pick up there, there is an a link so that you can look at the policy report of the European Expert Group. Do do pick that up. Um, Time for a few more questions. There's an interesting uh, one here saying um, many good ideas, but should we not start now being more ambitious in discovering more innovations in the EU. Who would like to take that one on innovations? Is that you, Olga? I think you might be muted.
6: Great, yeah. I, I should do it once now. So, of course, yeah, everybody I, must. Yeah. <laughs> exactly and yeah we should be ambitious actually you know it was the essence of the regulation when it was put in place because it was a market failure at the time in the area of rare diseases we didn't have medicines at all so you know we need to um, be uh, ambitious about innovation and i would echo you know what Previous speaker said, Jan, you know, we spoke about, you know, ultra-rare diseases, but, you know, even within the area of rare diseases, there are so many diseases, you know, where we do not have any treatment at all. And the whole, you know, system which was set, you know, with incentives and rewards, you know, to invest, you know, in this area, it has given fruits, but, you know, there are some weaknesses. And, you know, I think that we are on the same actually you know path as suggested about modulation of incentives of a system which is also you know efficient and uh, predictable in any in many ways not only with regard to the incentives to accommodate this innovation so i think the objectives are there and it is very important yeah thank you sue
0: Thank you. Another question that's come in from our audience saying, Mark Dooms says several rare diseases can indeed be prevented. Why isn't more attention given to this aspect? Is is that correct, Jan? Uh,
8: in fact, when we look today at the 6%, to be precise, of the diseases for which there is uh, an intervention, uh, th- there is more than 1% person for which it's preventive action um and uh it's so you get that prevention two ways preventing the disease itself to appear uh because you know that you are at risk of developing the disease so you're taking certain therapeutic actions to avoid that uh, or uh, prevention also of developing the symptoms of the diseases which express itself but you're avoiding the symptoms so we can act on the two level the orphan drug regulation today in the US as in Europe includes this aspect of prevention. It even includes vaccine. So it's um, it's completely uh, possible, but it has not been stimulated as an area of research and as an area of, of, of investment. But part of, of, of this really, for me, goes back to a change of mindset, if not paradigm, to use the, the big word, but the, that rather than waiting for the innovation to come, there could be other ways to collaborate at European level between member states. For member states to take responsibility of their population and of their money in the healthcare system and say, if you develop a product for this, to do prevention on this or to stabilize that disease or to cure that the people affected by that disease with a permanent cure rather than a chronic treatment, then I'm ready to pay this value. We could also change the, 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 the approach and rather than discussing downstream discussing much more upstream through horizon scanning of science but also by saying what society what healthcare system wants to see to address some of the unmet needs of of people and uh, prevention can come in the conversation I think as part of the of this but there is again different level of primary which uh, mark Doom knows perfectly but of primary prevention, secondary prevention, but also stabilization of disease or cure of diseases. But that's the fantastic opportunity ahead of us. We have a lot of new technologies coming in which are going to be transformative or curative. A lot of them are going to be for the rarest diseases, for the not for the only for the rare. We need to get organized. This will not work with the 27 member states as we are and it will not work if we simply say that the incentive is to make it mandatory for the companies to place it on the market that doesn't solve the situation we need to balance it with cooperation between member states a gene therapy which is intended for 50 patients per year you don't ask to a company to put it on every market in europe it just doesn't make sense what makes sense is to have an agreement between member states to discuss the value, to discuss the price, to invest in generating additional evidence and deciding in which centre we're delivering it.
0: Thank you. A question has come in that I think would perhaps be best posed to Professor Michael Schlander, who spoke earlier. Uh, Michael, if you're still with us, <laughs> come out from the shadows. Ah, you're with us, lovely. Um, a question has come in from um, it's asking how the does the proposed common value assessment compare to the proposed EU HTA regulation? Um, What's your take on that one? Because you're the, the expert on the payments here. Do we still have Michael? Well, let's, let's move on then. I think we may have lost uh, Michael Schlander there. Um, another point of course that's come up is about, is about Covid and it would be interesting to know from, from perhaps um, a, a one or two of you about what further urgency the pandemic year has given to finding solutions, finding R&D and innovation for rare diseases. Peniel, do you feel the last year has given this increased urgency? Uh,
7: definitely, uh, that's for sure. Uh, and, and also in a way where um, if we didn't have uh, had the, the pandemic, uh, I wonder how the discourse uh, would be around uh, the topics we are addressing in this uh, seminar, um, and there's always pros and cons uh, to that. And the cons right now on uh, the uh, uh, on the the, the, uh, the, the um, uh, situation and the uh, negotiations and the, uh, the discourse around the uh, pharma strategy is that um, we tend to focus a little bit maybe too much on on vaccines and 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 on also on more large larger uh, patient groups. And we could, uh, and and we should avoid, but we could uh, uh, overlook uh, the, uh, the the rare diseases and the orphan uh, medicines. Um, also, in terms of uh, one one specific uh, uh, part of the the, uh, the discussions uh, on the uh, the uh, the strategy paper is the idea of uh, joint commissioning, uh, because when it comes to to rare diseases it m- would make uh, a lot of sense uh, to try to uh, to to design uh, a kind of a, a joint commissioning uh, to scale up uh, the the uh, the business uh, uh, potentials and also the as said by a uh, 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 was it uh, um, I don't see the name here on the screen sorry uh, on the predictability for the industry and the uh, interest of the industry to to also engage um, even more in r d on rare diseases uh, um, i think uh, it's it's very very crucial that we as politicians uh, are aware of uh, not overlooking uh, the rare diseases in terms of designing the future uh, uh, of of uh, of the uh, the pharma uh, industry policy uh, because of the influence that uh, the corona situation has uh, has taken uh, uh, us into. Uh, also, we see it on the uh, the IP rights d- debate. Uh, also, that there are some basic industry policy tools that uh, we must be careful not to to dismiss. Uh, uh from the strategy because we are also right now in a situation where we <laughs> uh, we wanna we wanna do everything good for uh, for all but we also need to address the market mechanisms and i'm very appreciative to the points making about the competition situation between us and and eu uh, in regards to uh, the approval processes also the fda and the EMA. Uh, 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 um, you could say uh, um, uh, di- not dilemmas, but but there, there are some things about the uh, the yeah that is very crucial to take up. I think I lost connection or something like that.
0: Yes, you thank you, thank you. We 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 did get. It was just the very it was end Alexandre, of
7: it lost, uh, I was referring to it before. <laughs>
0: Thank you very much indeed for, for those observations. And we do have Professor Michael Schlander, um back now. And just like to put that question that was posed earlier um, from the audience to, to you, but with your your hat on of health economics. The question came: How does the um, proposed common value assessment compared um, to the proposed EU HTA regulation from the Commission? So how do how do you assess that? It, it, how does it compare to the HTA regulation from the Commission?
5: um like okay yeah okay great so uh, let 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 me try to uh, to 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 focus here on the economic component uh, that is uh, the key difference actually um the the uh, Uh, The EU Commission proposal uh, goes in the right direction in my my perspective, Uh, but it has not really addressed uh, the components of value that uh, we need to include when we do cost value analysis. And uh, here, uh, I think we need a broader framework uh, that is incorporating the various components of social value. This has not yet been addressed in a formal way. Uh, It's a tricky subject, so uh, it is easy to complain about that, but it's much more difficult to fix it. Um, Because uh, what we need uh, to achieve is a balance between, uh, on the one hand, being uh, comprehensive, on the other hand, uh, uh, avoid double counting, for example, Um, uh, just to give you one of the obvious examples, you cannot do a cost per patient analysis and then budget impact analysis because you will double count certain components of cost immediately. So you need to make choices here uh, and uh, this needs to be reflected uh, on the value side uh, in a similar manner. Um, The key really is um, that uh, we we need to move in a direction and we haven't done so yet that we have ideally a a framework that applies to both rare and common disorders it is uh, it is kind of a of a fix of of, uh, of some of the shortcomings of the conventional approach that we say we need exceptions for rare disorders but we I, I think we need to include uh, uh, the prevalence of a disorder in a way uh, that allows us to make consistent assessments uh, for high prevalence diseases as well as for low prevalence diseases including the ultra rare ones Um, This can be done, uh, but uh, it will take a little bit more work.
0: Thank you very much indeed for those observations. We're coming to the end of our time, and I want to put a question very briefly to both Olga and Penil. Very brief, even one word answer. I was reminded of when President uh, JF Kennedy was asked uh, by, he asked one of the scientists, what would it take to put a man on the moon? And the scientist answered, the will to do it. So, Olga, Penil, is there the will to to make a difference, to really make an impact, to break through, to get the holistic approach, to get the regulatory right, to give the flexibility? One word answers more or less. Olga, is the will there to make this happen?
6: Of course, of course there is the will, you know. And, uh, you know, we don't also um, start from scratch. We have a good basis. So it's um, not a revolution we're trying to do. We're just... Trying to uh, actually adapt the system so that it's even more performant for the future. So, will and ambition is there. And, you know, I think a very important element that it was mentioned before it's balance as well. So, you know, we have all these three elements and we will work together with all stakeholders to make it happen.
0: Thank you. Penil, can you keep it even shorter? <laughs>
7: <laughs> I must. And I would say that there is uh, um, also uh, and there must be. Uh, heart and power and the power of the European economic muscle uh, is still here. And we must use it also because if we cannot uh, be the best place for citizens to live with a rare disease in EU, um, if there are better places elsewhere on the globe, then also the industry will follow uh, in the long run and that will deteriorate actually the Europe that we uh, know. So heart and power to uh, our ambitions.
0: Heart and power. A very good note to end on. Thank you very much to all our speakers today, to the panel, to the experts who helped construct those proposals, uh, to the organizers, to the media partner you're active, and of course to the audience for contributing questions and taking all this on board. It's been my pleasure to be guiding you through these discussions today. Thank you very much to everybody for joining. Bye for now.